Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This evening we will be looking at Psalm 48. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 472. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. With inner citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them. Their anguish as as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Lord, for perhaps we might say this mini-series of Worship 101. And so we ask now, would you speak again, O Lord, as your servants are listening. We ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 413, Augustine, perhaps you've heard of him before, would begin a 14-year project, and that is a writing of a book. Depending on how you consider the book and its uh, layout, it's entitled The City of God, and it is largely based off of Psalm 87, and to be specific, he actually is basing the majority of it off of the first three verses, which read, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Psalm 87 is showing forth the glory of that great city, that is Zion. It's showing forth the city of God as the greatest. And in fact, if you're reading it, the writer is telling you that city is above all the cities, And in fact, it even references Babylon and other cities. And what it's trying to say there is, this is what makes a great city. It's God's city. And if you read it carefully enough, what you find out is, there are great cities in the world, but that is where people are born. And you keep reading, and what it says about Zion, that it is born in her. And I think that is quite reflective of what we are looking at tonight in Psalm 48. 
but what Augustine is suggesting in his book, The City of God, it's 22 chapters, or in his language, it is 22 books, and he breaks it up into two halves. The first half, he is looking at the world from a pagan worldview, from an unbelieving worldview. How do we understand the world as if it were through the lens of an unbeliever? And then the second half is, what does it look like to see the world through the eyes of a Christian? He does so through the use of two cities. That is the city of man and the city of God. And he's comparing their origin. Where do they come from? He's looking at the direction by which they take. And then he finishes with the end. Now, perhaps if you know the cultural climate of that time, maybe there's a cultural reason why he's writing that. And that is simply at the fall of Rome, Christians were blamed for it. And what Augustine is saying is, at the peak of Rome's highest point, they called Rome the eternal city. And so how ironic that this eternal city fell. And Augustine is saying, it did not fall because of Christians. That could be a reason by which he writes it. Or perhaps he is giving to you the normal, everyday life experience. How do people live their life? If you are in the pagan worldview versus the Christian worldview. And what he is suggesting about the city of God and its greatness is not because of its physical location. It's because of who is in their midst, and that is God himself. And I think that is the entirety of the point of Psalm 48, is it is demonstrating what is most glorious about Zion. It is, in fact, God. And I want to look at it with three points That is the presence, protection, and proclamation. First, we'll look tonight at presence. It was, I think, about a week and a half ago, I was eating lunch with uh, Elder David Owen, and I had made an offhanded comment about a desire of mine. I would like to go to Jerusalem. I'd like to go to Israel. I'd like to go and see what it's looked like. I'd like to go on a tour. I've never been. And he sat patiently just listening to me, And then he, you know, David, he's very humble and gracious. And then he goes, oh, I've been. Like, it's not a big deal. That was my desire. And he just goes, I've done that already. Pastor Joel's been there. They've been to Jerusalem. And I think if you were to ask them, they could tell you all types of wonderful things about the landscape. But as I started reading Psalm 48, what I began to think was, I would like to go to Jerusalem, but I don't need to go there to understand the wonder Of what we have here. You see, in my mind, initially I thought it would be fantastic to go put my feet on the same ground that the Lord Jesus did. And I think that is true. But the reality is, I don't need to go to Jerusalem to find out where Jesus was. I can come here every week and find out where he is. And that's the beauty of what it means to go to church. That's the glory of this great city, as it were, is that God is in her midst. Now, I don't know if you would evaluate Jerusalem that way. Look at what the psalmist is saying. It is great great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. It's my understanding that Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. It wasn't until recent that I understood really what that looked like. Over spring break, my family got to go with another family, and we had gone up on a mountain, and I think it was right over 4,000 feet above sea level. 
And as I would look down, I, I would see the town, as it were, at the bottom of the mountain in the fields. Yes, it is, it's beautiful down there. But then there's a sense of security that kind of came into my mind. Now, I understand if you're sitting at a cliff and you're looking down that far, it doesn't seem very secure. But the reality is I would never be surprised by what is coming up because I am on top and I'm looking down. And here we have Jerusalem and the psalmist is saying it's beautiful in its elevation. It's, it's on high. It's looking down. It sees the towns. It's why we have in the Psalter the Psalms of Ascent. And that is the people would physically have to walk up to Jerusalem. Their eyes would literally have to be lifted up. And they're looking unto the hills, as it were, for where their help comes from and comes from the Lord, as they would say. And so there's something natural. There's something geographical that, yes, puts Jerusalem higher. But I don't think that's really the psalmist's full point. I don't think he's trying to drive home, well, the geography of Jerusalem is so wonderful I think what he's pointing out, it's not the geography, it's the theology. It's what this city actually represents. Because there's no way that you would read this psalm and agree with him. The world does not look at Jerusalem and say, oh, that is the most beautiful of cities. Until the world comes to the conclusion, that is where salvation was born. That is where salvation takes place, that it in fact affects the entirety of the world. Salvation here in Jerusalem has gone forth and to the ends of the earth. It has a universal reach. And then we look upon her and we say, how beautiful is this city? Is it in fact her location or is it in fact the one who rules and reigns there? You see this great city is beautiful, not in its appearance, but because of who is present there. Dr. Derek Thomas, uh, you've heard me speak of him before. He's Welsh. And on one occasion, I actually don't remember the context by which he was sharing this story, but uh, he talked about the queen, the queen of England, and what it was like uh, when she would move from palace to palace. There's a flag. I think it's, I think her colors are yellow, green and red, don't hold me to that, but as she would go from one palace to another, the flag would rise or fall. You understood where the queen was because you would look at the palace, and if the palace had the flag flying high, you knew the queen was in there. And what the psalmist is saying is here, do you see the flag? God is in her midst. This is the beauty of the city. It's because the king of kings is here. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And so he says, great is The Lord, what makes Zion great? It's God. It's the only thing that makes Zion great. It's God himself. And that truth still stands. What makes church great? Certainly it's not her structure or her physical appearance. It's God. It's why we come into this place every Lord's Day morning and evening, wanting to worship, not in our own strength. It's why we have a prayer of invocation. And what are we saying? God, come down. Come into this place. If this is going to be worth our worship, what we need is you. We need your presence. It's what makes it altogether worthy. It's what makes it worshipful is the presence of God. 
great is the Lord, the great city of God. He's transcendent. We toss that term around and it means nothing anymore in our culture, does it? God is not great in our world. You already knew that outside the walls, but even now the church is beginning to lower what it means that God is great. What we need is God to fit into our box. What we need is God to fit our understanding of things. What we need is God to do what we want. And yet the psalmist is saying, it matters not what you want. It matters not what you think. God is great because God is God. And what makes him great is in fact that he is God. And that's what we want our worship to be. We want a Psalm 48 kind of perspective. We want the world to see the greatness and the glory of God by the way that we worship. Does your worship demonstrate and declare God's glory? Or do you just go through the motions? We want the outside world to come in and taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, they will hear truth by God's grace, but will they see it? Will they see the glory of God by your faces, by the tones of your voice, by the fellowship of the saints? Will they recognize how good he is because they've dwelt in his presence and with his people? You do not come in here to meet with a pastor. You don't come in here to simply hang out. You don't come in here to find an elder to see if they'll help you. You come into worship to meet the king. And the king you will meet if you come in faith and you call upon him. For where two or three come together in my, in my name, there am I in their midst. The greatness of our worship isn't because we try hard. It's because God himself descends from the heavens and he comes down to inhabit our praises, and to meet with his people. What's great about the city of God? It's the presence of God. Well, what else is great about the city of God? It's the protection of God. When God's presence is there, something else comes with it, and it's his protection. We've been looking at the last few Psalms, Psalm 46 and 47, and you've recognized this this kind of theme, this small mini theme, the presence of God in his holy city. In verse 46, or Psalm 46, you learn that he was a fortress. He makes her strong. She will not be moved. Psalm 47 tells you he's on his throne. And Psalm 48 is saying the glory of the city is God himself. And yet when you read Psalm 48, there seems to be a problem going on. You're not quite sure what the psalmist is saying. Within our citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. You want to know that. But then the psalmist goes to uh, verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. We're not sure exactly what the context is. What is happening that this psalmist is having to say, the kings have come out. There are people who have assembled together. You know, in my morning devotions, I've just finished up Second Kings. I've just moved into First Chronicles. And I read this and I thought, what about that story? Maybe you remember it in 2 Kings 18 if you want some context, but 19. And that is Hezekiah's prayer. Not his prayer for the restoration of health. It's his prayer for the rescue of the people of God. 
Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrian army, is coming to ransack Jerusalem. And Hezekiah wanted to mitigate the situation, and so he, he pays a tribute, and he, and he thinks it's going to make the matter go away. And what does Sennacherib do? He, he sends some servants, and they're screaming things at the people. Don't, do not trust your king. Do not trust your leader. Don't, don't believe in Hezekiah. He's not telling you the truth. And in fact, they go as far as to say, don't believe in your God. He's not going to do anything for you. There's an army of at least 185,000 soldiers. And so Hezekiah prays and he asks God for help, for protection. And the next morning he wakes up and 185,000 soldiers have died. Not because Hezekiah has done anything. And how do we know it was bigger than that? Because people had to report it back to the Assyrians that their army has been slain. Maybe that's what the psalmist is saying. Or maybe he's got that picture that I haven't gotten to in 2 Chronicles 20. That is a coalition of armies has come upon Israel. They're planning to take her out. And King Jehoshaphat, he prays a very simple prayer. Oh, our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. They too go out in the morning and it's as though a battle has been won that they never fought. The enemy has been defeated. God has delivered him. You get this picture, don't you? Isn't that what the psalmist is saying in verses four and five? The kings have assembled. They came on together As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. It's that picture that maybe some of you have already considered in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see the pattern, don't you, in the scriptures? God is a fortress. He is a constant fortress for any and all who come to him. It's a powerful reminder because we're easily prey to the temptation that says when difficulty comes, it's because God's mad at me. This is all God's fault. I'm suffering. God's all upset with me. God's not the problem. Psalm 48 is telling you God is the answer. Go to him. Do not run from him. Come to him. Spurgeon says here, uh, he's referencing the famous quote of Julius Caesar, the Veni Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered, and Spurgeon twists it. What does he say here? He says, the kings come, they saw, but they did not conquer. In fact, they take to flight. And so the psalmist gives us an, an analogy, two of them actually. What happens? It's like a anguished woman in labor. Now, I cannot speak from any bit of experience. 
but perhaps the analogy, the imagery is as much as a woman cannot delay the pain that comes in labor, nor can the enemies delay the wrath of God when he comes. You cannot stop him. And then they say, what about the strong ships of Tarshish, the strongest of the strong? And God blows, and they're gone. It's just wind. It's birth, and they cannot stand. It's an incredible picture of the power and the protection of God. And it's no less powerful today. You don't need an Assyrian army. You don't need a coalition of armies. Part of what the psalmist is saying is just consider what God has done so that you might find safety and security where you are today. Know what he has done, what he can do in order that you might feel assured where you are this day. Think on the past. What do you know about God? What have you heard him do? Perhaps some of you might say, I have not merely heard what he's done, I've seen what he's done. Consider his power. We ought not to be surprised that when the situation stands tall against his people, that God rescues them. He promised that. What did he say? I'm building my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. I have one plan, and it's called church. There is no plan B. There's church in the Old Testament. There's church in the New Testament. It's not two peoples. It's one people because you have one king. It's called church. And I've promised to protect and provide for my people. What provides for us security? It has nothing to do with this building. If you have ever been here late at night, you know it has nothing to do with this building. This is one of the scariest places I have ever been when it's dark outside. There are noises that come and you have no clue where they're coming from. This physical church will not protect you. But the one who dwells in her will. What provides the security is Jesus. He's in her midst. She will not fall and she will not fail because her king is Yahweh. What's his name? As for you, your name, O God, he's told you, I am the Lord. I am that I am. It's Yahweh. And don't you love what this psalm is suggesting to you? It actually suggested it in Psalm 47. It's not spending any bit of time trying to prove to you that God exists. It assumes the existence of God. And it's saying to you, you can trust him. When you look to other gods, all you have done is you have fashioned something out of existence into existence. You've created something in your mind. But Christianity is coming from a revealed religion and saying, it's God himself. He's made himself known. My security, my protection comes from the revealed one not the one that I have fashioned in my own mind. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? This great city is glorious. She's strong and secure, and it has nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with the one who made her. It has everything to do with the one who is in her midst. 
And so the psalmist says, if you understand the presence and protection of God, come on in. Look around. Because what you'll do is you'll praise him and you'll proclaim him as the name, verse 10, as your name, O God. So your praises reaches to the ends of the earth. Don't you just love that? You see, the psalmist isn't suggesting that we should take God's name to the end of the earth. It's declaring that it will go to the ends of the earth. It reminds us, O church, our chief responsibility is to praise God and to make his praises known. That is the chief responsibility of the church everywhere and at all times to make God known by praising him. And it will happen. And how do you know that? Because the psalmist tells you what, what happens. Well, we go in and we, we have thought on your steadfast love, O oh God. We've, we've considered your hesed. We've considered your covenant faithfulness to us by which you love us. And where do we do that? We do that in the midst of the temple is what the psalmist says. They go into the presence of God and what do they see? They see the love of God in the temple. How could they do that? This is in the Old Testament. How do you go into the temple and see the love of God? Is it not because they recognize the offerings that were taking place? There is a foreshadow, a greater expression to come. These people come into the temple and they see a table. They see an offering that is meant to take place. Offerings are taking place, but you and I don't enter a building thinking about offerings. We think about offering. That's what Peter says. Christ died once and once for all. Jesus made an end to all my sin. Sometimes we sing. We preach the death of Christ because when we preach the death of Christ, we're declaring the love of God. Isn't that what we learn? What is 1 John 4 tell us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were powerless, while we were dead, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We see the offering of Christ and we praise him and we proclaim him because God is right. He's righteous, this psalmist says. His hand is filled with it. And these people can only praise him for his righteousness if they understood what the righteousness of God would do. And that is that he emptied his hand of wrath upon his son. No unbeliever praises God for his righteousness because that means they are condemned. The people of God praise God for his righteousness because there is no evil that goes unpunished, but the evil in your life has been dealt with. The righteousness of God came about because of Christ. 
You were reckoned righteous because of Christ. The psalmist says the daughters of Judah are rejoicing. They're rejoicing over the judgments of God. Why would you rejoice over the judgments of God? What are they talking about? They're talking about the enemies of God being defeated. These people could not defend themselves. They needed to be defended. They had to be defended by their God. And we are still a daughter, as it were, of Judah. We can rejoice You and I, who were enemies of God, have been made friends of God, all because of His Son. We have much reason to rejoice for any and all who trust Him. Have you ever seen Him that way? Do you see your King? Do you see the flag? Do you come in recognizing that God is in our midst? Because the psalmist is inviting you to do so. Come on in. Look around. Consider what you might see. Praise him. Praise him and tell the next generation. And some of you go, I'm not, I'm not very comfortable with that. I know that word. That, well, we call that evangelism. I'm not good at that. Yes, you are. If you know how to worship, you know how to evangelize. You can tell someone what you have seen. You can tell someone what you have shared, what you have understood, what you have studied, what you have experienced. How do I know that? Because I have children. I have one son who is entirely obsessed with Minecraft. I don't care about Minecraft at all. And he can tell me everything. Everyone can evangelize. Evangelism is just an overflow of praise. When you know God, you are a very good evangelist. And the psalmist is saying, come on in and look around. When you praise God, you will tell the next generation. And Psalm 48 is anticipating what that will look like. It's an expansion of the kingdom of God in time and space. You'll tell the next generation. That is throughout time. You'll tell the community of people. That is space everywhere. You'll tell everybody Everybody, everywhere, all the time, because you love him, because you see him, because you recognize him, you'll proclaim him. It's why the psalmist says there in verse 13, consider well her ramparts. The King James Version actually translates that word bulwark, the walls of defenses, that which is protective, Consider the protection, the defense of this place, how it will move you, how it secures you as a church and as a believer. John Owen, on this comments, he says, the church has five bulwarks, five defenses. The first, I find it helpful, he says, the first is that Jesus is the king. He is the king of Zion. All other kings and kingdoms, they come and fall. And yet here, this one, Jesus is the king eternal. Consider the bulwark that Jesus is the king. The second is consider the promises of God, which I appreciate what he says. Consider the promises of God because they are innumerable. Have you ever considered that? The promises of God being innumerable. How wonderful. For two different reasons. It means God has to be faithful to every single one of them. All innumerable of them. Or he's not God. 
The second thing it should tell you is promises are meant to be practiced. Don't be comforted merely that the Bible has promises. Know them. Find out what they are. What do they mean? How do they apply to me and to my life? How do these promises secure me in this life? The third, he says, is the watchful providence of God over the church. Oh, how careful you and I are to watch that which we love. How much more God to watch over his church, to know that he he never grows weary. He never sleeps nor slumbers. Or according to the great theologian Patton Myers, he never snores either. The fact that God is always watching how he cares for his people. The fourth is the special presence of God. The Jews knew that. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They knew the presence of God just by having the Ark. That's what Psalm 46 is telling us. God is in her midst. She will not be moved. But the stable parts of worship aren't because of its elements. It's because of the one who's behind it. The special presence of this place, again, it's not this place. It is, in fact, God. It's not the structure. It's not the material. It's God. It's a special moment every Lord's Day, and you get a double blessing of it for any and all who would come morning and evening. And then finally, John Owen says the last bulwark, unto which all others may be reduced, he says, is the covenant of God. That's what the psalm says. This is God, our God. What a hope. What a joy. What a security that comes from knowing that we have a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, that we are his, and he is ours, that the blood of Christ, it, it fully and finally saves. It secures and it sanctifies us And that's what the psalmist is saying, where it says he will guide us forever. It's the Hebrew saying he will guide us into eternity, through eternity, over death, in death. He's never going to leave nor forsake. Maybe it reminds you of the song we just sang. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I stand. We don't want this to be a a background doctrine, rarely considered. This should always be before our eyes. The beauty and wonder of this great place. Look at her, the psalmist says. Inspector, get to know everything you can about her. Be studious in your observation because all that you receive, you're supposed to give it away. You're supposed to be a student so that you might be a teacher. So much of the church, you might say, is what's under construction. Maybe physically at times, but perhaps spiritually for sure. You come in and you can see the scaffolding. You can see the stains. You can see all the workers as it were. But what happens when you pull back those stains? When you remove the scaffolding when you remove all of the barriers, what are you going to see? What's the masterpiece that will be standing there? 
And this psalmist gives us a sudden surprise. How would you answer that question? Having been told to come in and look around, what would be the masterpiece that you would think would be there? Consider the things, take note, it's, it's Zion. Here is the city, but that's not where the psalmist ends. He tells you to come in, and what will you see? God. It's the wonder of the place. It has nothing to do with her walls. It has everything to do with the one who inhabits it. The beauty of it is God. It's not his bride. It's not a building. It's Jesus. The masterpiece is God himself. That's what this psalm is about. It's, it's in fact, all about God. Learning to worship because you see him as he is. He made this city. He makes it beautiful. He protects her. He provides for her. And he invites you in. Oh, what a day. I want to be a special day when glorious things of thee will be spoken forever. There will never be an end to the glorious things that we might speak. The song we're about to sing, it's that last part. It's the lasting treasures. The only people who know them are the children of Zion, the children of God. I hope you know that. I hope that's how you come into church. You come in not to see a beautiful person or people, but you come to see the king. You've come to worship the king. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you. What a profound reality that we stand not on our plans or on our strength, not on our structure, not even on our efforts of worship. We stand on Jesus, the firm foundation, what makes church beautiful to us and according to your word to the world is that Jesus is in our midst. Oh Lord, might we be a people who regularly taste and see that the Lord is good, knowing that you would descend from your throne and glory to come in here, to hear from your children, to speak to your children, to minister to your children, to bless your children. Might we be enabled then with a greater degree of understanding and of truth and even of capacity to worship, knowing that our defenses are not our own, but they are you. And we have the promise that there is nothing, there is no one, and that no time or place that can ever thwart the plans of Almighty God. And therefore, we stand on your promise that the gates of hell will not prevail, that we might faithfully, even this day, worship. And so as we conclude, O oh Lord, we pray, please stir up worship in our hearts and pull it out of our mouths that we might see Jesus, and we pray in his name.